Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On a cold, snowy winter night in January 2008, an officer was on patrol with his partner when a call came in to 911. The caller said a friend told her that another friend was in trouble. That call was the starting point of a frantic and complicated search for a missing mother of five. Well, there was no doubt in our mind that she was, uh, that something horrible was happening to her and we needed to find her right away. We just didn't know where. The urgency was through the roof. The emotions are through the roof, right? It was very scary and very, uh, you just had this feeling that it wasn't, it wasn't going to end well. You couldn't, in, in your worst case scenario, could never have imagined it would turn out the way it did. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, a story that's haunted an officer for nearly 15 years after it first unfolded. I need to warn you, details of this case are extremely disturbing and include a violent sexual assault. This is A Prayer for Arcelli. January 17, 2008, was an especially frigid night in Calgary, the kind of night that makes people want to stay cozy at home. But for Constable Russ Williamson, duty called. Like, it was freezing outside, I remember that. It was a really light snow. Obviously, it's mid-January. I want to say it was at least minus 30 degrees outside. It was a very, very cold evening. Williamson is a veteran detective with the Calgary Police Service, But in 2008, he was working as a senior patrol officer. Well, I was working night shift. Uh, At that time, we called them 2100s, which basically working at nine at night till seven in the morning. Yeah, it was a pretty normal shift. Like uh, that area of the city can be pretty busy. Um, And I know um, my partner and I, we had an arrest that we had taken down to the arrest processing unit. We had just taken um, a prisoner down there and had uh, admitted him in and we were leaving. And when we were leaving, I remember there was this call that was up on the board my partner and I were driving together and um, we we were in our police vehicle and I saw it and it was in a different zone. And when you work in police, uh, there's different zones within each district that you cover. Our assigned zone, we are responsible for all calls, priority calls, mid-level priority calls, and then ones that are just basically paperwork calls. Uh, This was kind of a mid-priority call, how it came in. It was just something unusual and unique about it. And so we asked uh, the dispatch officer to send it to us. The call came in to 911 just after 11. This is an excerpt from that call. Yes, uh, I just want to, I just need help, please. Okay. My friend is in downtown right now, and then she's crying, and then I think somebody's assaulting her right now. Someone is assaulting her. So she's rang you, has she? No, he, he called my friend. He called my friend, and then 
he called me also and then we don't know what to do. Okay, all right. So, so where, where in, where in, where in, in downtown. Okay, do you know the address of where they are downtown? I, I'm sorry because I, I, I'm just... I just got nervous, and then he said, "Just he he said he said mm. that he's just in searching downtown around downtown." So you don't know where this person is? Yeah. Oh, she is my friend. Yeah, do you know her? She's a friend, but you don't know where she is. Just she's in downtown. Okay, in downtown, but whereabouts in downtown? Uh, around the church there. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the place he said. And she's rang saying she's being assaulted by... Because she's working around downtown. Mm-hmm. But she said she's been uh, attacked by who? But I don't know, because maybe some men, because she said they're trying to rape her. It was just a unique call because the way that it came was that a third caller had called to say that they had received a call from a friend who was claiming to be raped and murdered. And... It, like in all my policing career, I've never had that again, right? I didn't have it before and I haven't had anything like that since. Usually, a call to 911 is made by the person in need of help or by a witness. The way this call came in added a confusing layer for Williamson and his partner to work through. It's so unique that somebody would call someone else to say they're being raped and murdered and it would go. And sometimes, you know, we get unusual calls. We get things that are weird. So we uh, picking it up and looking at it, we're like, okay, there's obviously a lot of things that we got to do here to figure out exactly what's happening. Is this legitimate? Is it not legitimate? And if so, where is the person we need to speak to them, see, um, just kind of figure out what's going on. At this point, all they knew for certain was that a woman named Arceli LeWagon was missing, and her friends believed she was in desperate need of help. A second call came in to 911 just minutes after the first. Calgary Police Emergency. Uh, there's something appealing on the uh, 8th Avenue. There's a Filipino lady called me that he needs help in that road. Okay, are you there? I'm not, I'm not there with, I'm driving because it's difficult to drive. And he, he said he, there's a guy uh, raped with her. Okay, so a guy what, her? I'm having a hard time understanding you. Uh, raping her. There's a guy raping her. Okay. Yeah. Okay, do you know, so you passed by? No, I am the friend of that girl. Okay, so she called you. And she called me. Why wouldn't I, she call, does she have a phone number I can call her at? Once again, there was a lot of confusion. And this girl called you and said she's in some kind of trouble, but you, have, you don't know where she is. Yeah, she is uh, along the 8th Avenue because she's working at the office of a computer there. Okay, if, if she was in trouble, wouldn't she call police, though? I th- maybe she doesn't know where, where to call it, but I'm sleeping. Okay. And she did call me, and I don't know what to do now. What's her name? Arcelli. The 911 operator tried calling Arcelli's phone directly. There was no answer. Hi, you reached Arcelli. Please leave your message. Thank you. The operator tried her number a second time. It's the police here. Please pick up your line. Hello, please pick up your line if you can. Or call 911. Minutes later, they tried Arcelli's number a third time and again got her voicemail. 
Arcelli, it's the police again trying to get a hold of you. Please call 911 if you need the police and let us know where you are. Thank you. There's those times where as you're getting more information, you're like, whoa, we, we've got a serious, we, you know, this just isn't one of these random calls that we get through that uh, uh, people are making a prank or making something up. This is absolutely legit. The urgency's kicking up quite a bit. Racing against the clock, the search for Arcelli continued. Williamson contacted Arcelli's friend, Melkor. Speaking to him for me was, uh, that's something you never forget as well, right? And he said he originally received a call from her when she said that she had left work. And she called him to say that a strange person was following her. So she originally got that and he asked her to keep in touch with him, right? And it wasn't 10 minutes after that call that he got the second one. So much like on my cell phone, if I push talk, the last number that called comes up. So I think she just pushed talk twice. So I, I think it wasn't even so much of her dialing in a phone number or looking at 911, it was just talk, talk, and I went to the last phone number. Williamson said what Arcelli's friend heard on that call was beyond disturbing. He was like witnessing it through audio for sure. Um, it, uh, at some point, it, like it, the phone line wasn't open the entire time. He said it, it went dead at some point, right? So it was a brief call, but it was enough that, you know, obviously he was really, really shook by it. Right away, he's urgent. He's gonna go down and try to find her. He, he lets another lady know, that, hey, call the police while I go do this, right? Um, so, and with that language barrier, it makes perfect sense, right? Because he would be, it, when you're under distress, sometimes it's harder to communicate. Well, there was no doubt in our mind that she was, uh, that something horrible was happening to her and we needed to find her right away. Um, we just didn't know where. At this point, you're likely wondering if investigators were able to use Arcelli's phone to trace her location, since she was using her phone. Williamson told me they tried, but it took a while. And when they finally got it, the location was too broad to be particularly helpful. As police retraced Arcelli's steps, their first stop was her home in southeast Calgary. Her roommate answered the door. She said that Arcelli was, um, you know, she was a wife, she had kids, they were, uh, her husband and kids were back in the Philippines. She was just renting a room there, she was working in Calgary, providing money back to her family in the Philippines to help them come over. Um, uh, where she worked downtown Calgary, she got off work normally around 10 o'clock at night, usually arrived home around 10.30 to 11 that she took the transit. Uh, very, very out of character for her to ever be late. She never, ever uh, didn't come home on time. From what we knew at that point was that, you know, she had made a distressing call to her friend, um, who in turn had called another person. Um, we knew that she was at work. Well, we believed she was at work and that she had left her job and that something had happened to her. She was attacked somewhere downtown Calgary. That's what we had believed her at a park. By then, it was well after midnight. About an hour had gone by since the original call for help. And that's what we are frantically trying to find at this point is where is our starting point? Where do we need to be, right? So we're, we're trying to timeline, if, if you will, as to where um, 
the last time she's been seen at, where has she been at, or where has she worked, what's all this stuff. So finding her, her work was uh, gonna help us be able to determine the route home. Once again, Williamson turned to the first 911 caller for help. She didn't know where she worked, but she knew, or the address, but she could point it out to us. So we actually, my partner and I, we went and we actually picked her up and went down there. This business actually works late at night and it, they were like a print shop. So they're off um, doing stuff. We were able to get a hold of a supervisor that uh, in turn um, was able to find a couple of people that worked on shift at the same time. Jane Mugford was Vice President of Technology and Operations at West Canadian, Arcelli's workplace. I'll never forget, I had uh, gone to bed and it was just like a normal night. It was, you know, other than a snowstorm and really cold and had gone to sleep and my phone rang uh, in the middle of the night, two or three in the morning. And that in and of itself wasn't unusual. And in my position, I'd sometimes get calls in the middle of the night, but usually it was, you know, some, some equipment had gone down or there was some issue, but it was never, it was never enough to shock me that the phone was ringing. Um, but this time it was different. It was our, our CEO, uh, George, and he just said, I answered the phone and he said, uh, Jane, our Sally's missing. And I just said, what, what do you mean? And, sh and he said, the police are here, our Sally's gone missing. And I, I don't even know at that point if I just probably hung up on him. I was out of bed at that point, grabbing clothes. Uh, to run myself down to the office to see what was going on. And uh, it was shocking. Jane was able to confirm Arcelli left work at about 10 p.m. Basically what we saw in the security footage was her just walking away from the building and it wasn't anything, there was nobody there, there was nobody, you know, she just had her, her personal bag and stuff with her and walked out of view of the security footage. They worked through the night, trying to come up with any information that could help police locate Arcelli. The police had told me she had made a phone call and that's what, you know, they were trying to base everything around. And um, I was, I, I, like, there's nothing that prepares you for, as a leader, as a manager, nothing prepares you for this type of situation. So you're just truly desperate to gather whatever information and and I just remember my my mind racing well what could have happened how you know who could have this who where is she and and we were trying to get word of her friends to her friends to find out if anybody had heard from her and it was literally I, I was calm but panicked I knew it was bad um, and I just knew the police knew they had to find her quickly and so I was trying to help do whatever we could but I was it was, um, it was very scary and very, uh, you just had this feeling that it wasn't, it wasn't going to end well. You couldn't, in, in your worst case scenario, could never have imagined it would turn out the way it did. Feeling immense pressure, officers continued their frantic search of downtown Calgary. Here again is Detective Williamson. The information you're receiving, and even from Melkor, he had told us that yeah, she was in a park downtown. She was downtown, just left work. So that's all we're hearing. That's all we're thinking is downtown. We're urgently trying to find her. She's gotta be downtown, right? On top of it, uh, after our sergeant, uh, we had told her, uh, told him where uh, 
her place of employment was he had notified me that a couple months earlier a lady was viciously sexually assaulted along the c-train line that was like just a couple blocks from there so now we're thinking oh my goodness i know i had contacted the transit security to see uh, the transit station was there see if we could get video to confirm if she was there and if somebody was following her right so we're trying to get all these different things coming back to us every officer available that night was brought in to search for Arcelli. So a bunch of officers were deployed from, um, from throughout the city. I think there was about 14 different officers. And then uh, myself and my partner, we just conducted a big grid search downtown. And uh, we did a couple different searches down there. We looked at everything. We went through all the parks, went through the back alleys, went through any of the, the big garbage bins and stuff like that. We went through everything and we just couldn't find her. How much time has gone by at this point? Well, at that point, from the time that we finished our last search, I would have said probably from the time she left her job, you would have been looking close to six hours, if not a little bit more, in freezing, freezing cold weather. The urgency was through the roof. The emotions are through the roof, right? Overnight, as officers searched for Arcelli, temperatures dipped below minus 19 degrees Celsius with blowing snow. That extreme cold put extra strain on officers and added to their concern for Arcelli that she could suffer from hypothermia. And I remember at the end of the last search, um, we were going back to the office because we were off shift and it was about 5.30 in the morning and we were done at about six. And obviously we have to fill out all these reports and everything for, because this isn't going to end. They're going to keep searching for her after this, right? But it's just, uh, you look back on these things and, uh, I remember we were, my partner and I, we were driving from downtown up through Memorial, so we're driving right by Grace Baptist Church. That's when another call came in to 911. This one was answered by EMS. I'd like to report an incident of some sort. I was walking to the bus stop this morning and I found a dead lady. You found what? A dead woman. Where? In, in Calgary and Franklin Station. Are you there right now? Well, I'm not there with the lady, but I'm at the station. And you can tell us where she is? Yes, I know where she is. And you are sure she's dead? She's not getting up. That operator then put the caller through to police. I'm going to play excerpts of that call. But a warning, the details you're about to hear are extremely graphic and disturbing. Hello, ma'am. Yes, hi. So can you tell me what you saw? Well, I was walking down the bike path and I, I saw a lady on the on, on the grip on the ground. Mm-hmm. She was not moving. She had her her pants all the way down to her ankles. She had her pants down to her ankles. She had her pants all the way down to her ankles. She was pretty much half naked. Okay, now where was she when you saw her? Do you know where the Franklin Station is? Yep. Well, right beside the New Baptist Church, up behind where the bike path is. There was blood everywhere. Detective Williamson said it's hard to put into words exactly how he felt when that call came in. It was grief for sure, right? Like, you just... um, You just know. uh, Like, you know the resolution wasn't good. And I mean... We probably knew that a long ways through that call, right? That the resolution is not going to be good. 
my partner and I were we're going over there, right? We take the call, we're going over right away because we know, like we know. Williamson and his partner drove to the scene. You'll remember that they were driving by Grace Baptist Church when the call came in. That's just a short walk to the Franklin Station, so it took them just a few minutes to get there. I had uh, the other officer and the EMS guys just follow me in my footsteps, and we took the most conspicuous way we could to come in that we didn't trample on everything. And as soon as we got up to her, we knew, like we knew. We, we had the EMS guys check her, and sure enough, yeah, she had passed for sure. Um, and so, um, you know, as the, I was the senior officer there, so I just, uh, while we were waiting for the um, our sergeant to come over and secure the scene, cause all the direction. We just kind of made sure that there was a wide swath on the crime scene and updated our sergeant as to what happened. I will tell you this, like out of all the crime scenes that I've been to, and I've seen a lot, right? I've, uh, being a major crimes, being in a homicide, I've seen a lot of crime scenes. This is the worst one I've ever seen. She died probably the worst death you, you could imagine, right? And uh, she was beaten for sure. She had suffered significant facial injuries. The woman was beaten beyond recognition. Williamson said in his heart, given the circumstances and timing, he knew it was Arcelli. That's when Williamson did something he had never done before as a police officer and has never done since. Well, I'm a Christian as well, and I know she was a Christian. Um, You know, I, uh, like, I just... um, I remember kneeling down beside her and I said a prayer for her and uh, like I touched, I think I touched her hand or something and I said a prayer for her. Williamson is haunted by what he saw that morning. You definitely have those those images in your head and those are things that, like I said, they burn in your brain and you, there's no getting rid of them. Arcelli LeWagon was found just a few hundred meters from the transit station and less than a five-minute walk from her home. The what-ifs play over and over in Williamson's mind. In hindsight, you look at that, and you're like, why did I not go that route? Like, why did I not or even think of that to go that specific route, right? And that's something that I've carried for sure with me. The homicide unit took over the investigation. Patty McCallum is retired now, but served 33 years with the Calgary Police Service. Her partner was assigned as the primary investigator on this case. So in this case, this was a true whodunit. When you look at the scene, you have to go with what's there. So it's not giving you a lot about the two people who were involved in the incident initially. So it takes a lot of work to start figuring out how did they come, how did they cross paths? There's probably about 45 minutes that the offender spends with Arcelli. It's a very difficult case to imagine when she remembers the last few moments suffering in the cold and with the suspect. It was extremely difficult for the medical examiner to positively ID the victim, even though all evidence pointed to it being Arcelli. I need to warn you, the details Patty McCallum shares are extremely graphic, 
but they're critical to help understand the impact this case has had on Arcelli's family and police. It's also important to understand the difficult work that laid ahead for investigators. The injuries to Arcelli were so traumatic. They included lacerations to her face and head, a broken orbital bone, which is under the eye, a broken jaw, nose, um, the swelling would have distorted her appearance quite dramatically. It's not a common method for the medical examiner's office to use a physical identification process or method. It's where family or friends will stand behind the glass. The body is prepared or it'll be cloaked, draped with sheets. And then the person is offered the opportunity to see through the glass whether or not the person is who they believe it is. So the friend was unable to identify for certain Arcelli. And the siblings, the brother and the two sisters also could not be 100% sure, but they believed in their heart it was her. So for the medical examiner, he then relied on the fact that it's, it's a very traumatic situation. In fact, I, I had to transport one of the sisters to hospital. She didn't have a heart attack, but she was so badly traumatized by seeing her sister in the state she was in, um, she was taken to hospital for a check. It took six days for police to get an official confirmation that the victim found was in fact Arcelli Lewagen. We were able to get our fingerprint and they, the family members were able to supply prints to us. The second step was to ask two of the siblings to provide a DNA sample, which we compared to her DNA, which then gave the medical examiner's office the positive ID that they required. In the meantime, the hunt for a killer was already well underway. Police knew they were looking for an extremely violent person who raped, beat, and killed Arcelli. Investigators had a few leads. They had CCTV footage that showed a man who appeared to be following her that night. They also had the killer's DNA. They just needed to find the person who matched. In this case, we had evidence, but we didn't have an offender in the registry. We checked for other offenders in the area. So we contacted parole and probation to see whether or not there was anybody within the area that may be responsible. As the investigation unfolded, Arcelli's family struggled to come to terms with what happened distressed by the final call she made to her friend. Here's her sister, Marlon Horry. She said, please help me. I need to help somebody rape me. Another sister, Caroline Maximo, said it broke her heart to call family back in the Philippines, including Arcelli's husband and five sons, to inform them of what happened. I cannot speak to them clearly because they're, uh, uh, they just cried and cried. 
knowing their mother's gun totally gun. So it's hard. Arcelli's brother, Oswald Zambrito, hoped police would be able to catch her killer. Whoever uh, witnessed the crime, uh, at least, uh, um, tried to come forward and that may help to, you know, to give justice. Arcelli's co-workers also struggled with the news. As a leader in the company, Jane Mugford said it was an extremely stressful time. That was probably one of the worst moments, certainly of my career and one of the worst moments of my life, having to tell our entire company that we'd lost a team member in such a way. I learned she was sending money home every two weeks at payday. And I remember literally standing there in the middle of this chaos, doing math in my head about when was payday and when were her kids gonna be expecting the next money transfer from mom. And so I said to our CEO at the time, we can't stop that. Like we gotta make sure she gets, they get their check or their money next week or whatever it was. And I mean, it seems kind of bizarre now because it was just in the thick of it. And I knew he would take care of that. But he said, let's raise some money. Like, let's take it to the next level. So that's, you know, we just knew we couldn't do anything to help those kids. They'd lost their mom, but maybe we could take away the financial burden, which really became the, the only thing we could do. And selfishly, it was to sort of make us feel better as well, because we just were, the entire company was at a loss. Days after Arcelli's death, a memorial was held. Her roommate was among many loved ones who spoke. Sometimes I don't, I can't believe that things have happened to Arcelli about this. So, even at the moment, sometimes I'm just praying, Lord, how I wish it's not her. Feeling helpless and grief-stricken, her sister Marlon Horry vowed to follow through with Arcelli's dream of bringing her husband and five boys to Canada for a better life. It was within her grasp. She was so close to accomplishing what she set out to do. We hope that, un- that her untimely death will not mean the end of her dream. Meanwhile, days went by and still no arrests, leaving an entire city fearful as this unidentified predator walked the streets. Patty McCallum remembers working tirelessly to make an arrest. But I remember the impact on the city. I remember the news. People were really upset with what had happened. I don't even know how to put into words what he did to her. He decimated her. And for what? And she suffered on a cold night by herself. But investigators had another lead, thanks to items her attacker left behind. What became a very, very critical key piece of evidence was the fact that the offender left his cooler and his hard hat at the scene. The hard hat had several stickers on them. And they actually represent, they provide 
information about a union that you work for or belong to, what type of work you do, where. So one of the detectives, having previous experience, recognized and knew the value of those stickers. Do we have some viable prints, prints from the hard hat? And it would be swabbed for DNA. So DNA then it gets put off to the side because you have DNA, but we have an unknown person who belongs to that DNA. Prints, on the other hand, are quicker to recover and to confirm. And that's what happened in this case. One week after Arcelli was found raped and beaten to death, police made an arrest. Christopher Watchiston was charged with first-degree murder. Russ Williamson, the original patrol officer who searched for Arcelli, was one of two officers who escorted Watchiston as he was taken into custody at Calgary Police Arrest Processing. I think they knew how much it bothered us and how much work we'd put into it, so they wanted, I think, in their way to give us a bit of closure as well. So when they ended up arresting him, they invited us up to uh, be there with the investigative team. Slowly, we learned more about the accused killer. Here again is Patty McCallum. He was a young man, 22 years of age, who had come from Ontario to work in Calgary. He had two other brothers. He lived with his dad. Court documents revealed Watchiston's mother was murdered in Regina when he was in grade nine. He dropped out of school shortly after that. He had some other criminal offenses that wouldn't put him in the same ballpark as this offense did. So this was a really extreme departure from what we had read about him in his files. It turned out when Arcelli was killed in January of 2008, Watchiston was out on bail for an assault charge from an incident about seven months earlier. And he was out on bail, accused of shot break and committing theft at a Calgary business, when he was arrested for the June 2007 incident. Arcelli's family expressed relief and gratitude to police that Watchiston was in custody. We like to take this chance to say thank you very much to the Calgary police for their efforts, countless time to come up with a, the, uh, the answer. It's, you know, the system is working for us, yes. Patty McCallum was deeply touched by Arcelli's loved ones. They, um surrounded us, and they made us feel like we were heroes. And yet, um, all you could feel was the devastation and the weight of what they would have to carry for the rest of their lives. So you sure don't feel like a hero. You do your job, you try to do it as quickly <clears throat> and to the best of your abilities. That's what we did. But that, that was the community 
that Arcelli was part of. Days after the arrest, a vigil was held for Arcelli. Family, friends, and complete strangers walked arm in arm as they retraced her final steps from the Franklin LRT station to where her lifeless body was found hours later. They carried candles and signs, and her grief-stricken sisters laid flowers in the snow. About a month later, the company Arcelli worked for announced the trust fund they created for her sons had grown to over $100,000. We knew that, you know, Calgarians and the community would come forward, but we had no idea the outpouring of support and compassion and uh, that everybody has shown. To know that our Sally's five boys, not only can we help them right now, but we've set up this fund such that it can be managed well into the future so that her youngest boy can, you know, continue to be looked after as the other four um, until they all reach adulthood. Again, Arcelli's sister Marlon said she was overwhelmed by the support. People were so generous. They're doing fine right now, like they're coping with the help of the family members. She really worked hard for her family. Yeah, nothing more <laughs> than her voice, yes. My sister left a legacy, and, and I'm proud to, to say she's my sister. On March 1st, 2010, just over two years after Arcelli Lewagen was killed, Christopher Watchiston stood trial in front of a Queen's Bench Justice. I got Patty McCallum to take us through the case. What had happened is earlier in the day after they got off work, he went to a co-worker's house and they uh, were drinking. And the host of the party, one of the colleagues, uh, went out and got more beer and he continued to drink quite a bit. He didn't have lunch. So he got intoxicated fairly quickly. He had an argument with another colleague, so the host asked him to leave. And he was shown where to catch the bus. Took the bus down Center Street to downtown. He wandered around downtown. CCTV evidence from Calgary Transit was played in court. So, it's at a critical point that we are able to see that he keeps a low profile, but he is, he's watching women. He's actually raising his head occasionally to look. It was like he was looking for a particular woman because others passed by him and he didn't give him a lot of luck. The video shows Arcelli Lewagen, who had just got off work, walked to a nearby LRT station then waited inside a transit shelter until her train left at 10.22 p.m. Watchiston was also seen boarding that same train. So she had her toque on and she had her hood, she had a heavy jacket on and mitts on, and she was bundled very, uh, very warmly because of the temperature. He had a um, heavy Carhartt jacket on. He was still dressed in his his construction work clothes and his heavy boots. And those boots, unfortunately, did considerable damage during the attack. 
Surveillance video from the Franklin Station, Arcelli's stop, painted a haunting picture of what happened next. It was very obvious that if he was looking for someone, he found her. So from about 10.30 p.m., you see them go up the stairs. So they're walking, they're actually physically walking up the escalator because it's broken. He's a few feet behind her, but you can see what she's wearing. You can see what he's wearing. He's a few feet behind her. He follows her out. And then he attacks her from, we believe, attacks her from behind, about 400 meters from the door of the LRT station. So the LRT captures the immediate proximity of the doors, but it's beyond that CCTV that the attack takes place. That was the last time Arcelli LeWagon was seen alive. And police believe Wachiston attacked her just moments later, out of view of the surveillance cameras. Investigators used those final moments on CCTV, coupled with phone records that showed calls to her friend Melkor to create a timeline. She left the station at 10.36, called her friend at 11.01. He tried calling her back twice and got through at 11.09. The call lasted four minutes and he heard her cry for help. The next time anyone saw Arcelli was more than an hour later. So around 12.30, sometime between 12.30 and 1 a.m., now on the Friday morning, January 18th, there was a person that was in by the Baptist church. They were in the area uh, walking home. They thought they saw movement by the shrubs. So as they walked a little closer, they actually did see Arcelli. They tried to speak to her, or they did speak to her, but she never responded. They could see her badly beaten face. There was blood around her head. Her pants were down at her ankle, so she was naked. And this was a very cold night. She was heavily um, clothed initially. She had a hat and mittens, which were thrown off to the side. So the person um, got scared and they didn't notify police till the following day. Unfortunately, this person was afraid to call. Like, what they're seeing is, is horrifying and they're not sure what to do. And they panicked and they left and went home. So it wasn't until 5.15 on Friday morning when a person walking to the C train to go to work saw her body and called police. The medical examiner testified Arcelli would have died soon after the head injuries were inflicted, within minutes, not hours. McCallum said even if that person was able to get Arcelli help at 12.30, it was likely already too late. After the attack, Watson did not go home. He actually went to a friend's house. And he lied about why he was there. He just said he had an argument with his brother and asked to stay there for a few days. So our search for him, we found out that 
He never returned to work Friday morning. He didn't return Monday morning, so they terminated him. He made up a story to you know, his friends, so if you take your boots off or you hide them in a room or you put them away so your friend can't see the clothing, you make up a story that he had a fight, uh, blood is spilt, so nobody thinks the wiser. And if the friend doesn't really believe, who would actually think that someone, your friend, could, could commit that horrendous a crime? Court heard police executed a search warrant at Watchiston's friend's home. That's where they uncovered key forensic evidence. So her blood was found on his, uh, on his clothing and his boots. We can use the, the size of the boot. The heel mark would be able to be matched to the injuries on the face and head. So those just confirm then for the medical examiner that this is what caused the injury, but she ultimately died of the head trauma. Watchiston was wearing work boots, which are steel-toed, heavy construction boots. They have a very hard heel, steel toe, so he had kicked her many times, and we learned later that he knew that she had made a phone call, and so he was trying to stop that so he focused on her face so that she would stop and he was hoping to cause a brain injury which actually would impair her memory. Police also recovered Arcelli's purse. His fingerprints are on the purse. He has a piece of her currency that she kept in her wallet. He kept that and um, I'm not quite sure strange if things have happened, I suppose, but one never knows what goes through someone's mind when, uh, if you're trying to get rid of evidence, why you would hang on to one piece of evidence. Christopher Watchiston took the stand in his own defense. He admitted to sexually assaulting Arcelli and also admitted he caused the head injuries that resulted in her death. But his defense argued this wasn't first-degree murder, but rather second-degree murder. Here's his defense lawyer, Alan Hepner. If you're convicted of first-degree murder, that's the, the most serious offense in the criminal code in terms of what we have, in terms of penalty. And there's no argument. If someone's convicted of first-degree murder, it's automatic 25 years, and there's all the criteria for that. Second-degree murder has uh, anywhere between 10, minimum life 10, 225, and a judge has to land on the appropriate sentence, keeping in mind the antecedents of the accused person, family background, tragedies, um, psychological makeup, psychiatric background, etc. So there's a wide latitude for judges who um, convict someone of second-degree murder and the penalty that's to be imposed. Hepner expressed sympathy for Arcelli's family. He saw the crime scene photos and acknowledged the horror she suffered. He also stressed the importance of someone like Watchiston having someone to defend him in court. It's always important. I, you, have to, you have to take on those first-degree murder cases. Sometimes you shy away. I had a case not long ago where a guy wanted to plead guilty to first-degree murder. I said, I'm not pleading guilty to first-degree murder. You get someone else to plead you guilty. I said, this is the most serious offense in the criminal code. You let, you, you, things, trials are a moving target, as you know. And there are changes, and the evidence doesn't come out exactly as expected. 
things change, witness changes, whatever happens. And I said, Some, that doesn't always happen. But as a result, I would not plead guilty to first-degree murder. I always run those trials. After 12 days of hearing evidence, the question for the court was, was this first-degree murder or second-degree? In the end, the Queen's Bench Justice convicted Watcheston of first-degree murder. Patty McCallum was there the day the decision was handed down. Why? Why did it even happen? Here was somebody who believed in all good things and who was very trusting and loving and it's just unfortunate they had to intersect at that time and place. Uh, One could speculate that if it wasn't her, it was going to be somebody else. He was just in that mindset that night that somebody would have been a victim of his. Just happened to be her. Arcelli's family was also there that day and they left court relieved it was over and focused their attention on honoring Arcelli's memory. She left a legacy. She's a good mother. Despite her siblings' best efforts, Arcelli's dream of having her five sons come to Canada has not happened yet. They're still living in the Philippines. Three of them are in the engineering profession, The youngest is still continuing his education. They credit their success to the generosity of Calgarians and to Arcelli's workplace, West Canadian, and the trust fund they created. For Detective Williamson, the man who tirelessly searched for Arcelli and prayed over her, her death still impacts him to this day. I cannot drive by that location without thinking of that. Nancy, like, I'll be honest with you. Thank God he got caught, because those strangers attacks like that, who knows if that would have happened again by him, right? Um, So out of the entire blessing, out of everything, that's probably the only blessing that came out of that whole situation. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the VP of Content and Distribution and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast And you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.